Okay, Merry Christmas to each and every one of you. I am Garrett West, and this is the long-awaited episode two of the Resonation Podcast by, like, all three of you. Thanks for listening. I appreciate it. Today's podcast is going to be solo. Pastor Jeff will be on the next one where we will discuss the idea of God's grace. Today, I wanted to get into the festive spirit by discussing some misconceptions on the origins of Christmas traditions. There are a lot of folks out there who claim that Christians stole a lot of winter traditions from pagan cultures, and while there are definitely some elements of pagan symbolism that have found their way into the adornments of churches, such as the Green Man, which is a sign of rebirth and new life, the Christian traditions gets a lot of flack for appropriating pagan cultures. So, let's start with the Christmas tree. So these are some talking points from a paper published through Michigan State about the origins of the Christmas tree as a tradition. So it says here that the evergreen fir tree has traditionally been used to celebrate winter festivals, both pagan and Christian, for thousands of years. Pagans used branches, not the whole tree, just branches, to decorate their homes during the winter solstice as it made them think of the spring to come. More specifically, Romans would use the whole tree to decorate around their homes for the new year. It wasn't used in the home and it wasn't decorated. It was just the fir tree itself. Christians used evergreens as a sign of everlasting life with God. Now, fir trees were first used as Christmas trees uh, probably about a thousand years ago in northern Europe. So uh, right here, I'm going to go ahead and interject the story of St. Boniface here um, in his missions trip to Germany to convert the pagans. You know, he's widely accepted by Christians to have established the first official. So from his missionary travels, Boniface knew that in winter, the inhabitants of the village of Geismar gathered around a huge old oak tree known as the Thunder Oak, uh, and it was dedicated to the god Thor. This annual event of worship centered on sacrificing a human, usually a small child, to the pagan god. Boniface desired to convert the village by destroying the Thunder Oak, which the pagans had previously boasted the god of Boniface could not destroy. So he gathered a few companions and journeyed to Geismar. His fellow missionaries were scared and fearful that the Germans might kill them, so they balked when they reached the outskirts of the village on Christmas Eve. Boniface steadied the nerves of his friends, and as they approached the pagan gathering, he said, Here is the thunder oak, and here the cross of Christ shall break the hammer of the false god Thor. Boniface and his friends arrived at the time of the sacrifice, which was interrupted by their presence, and in a show of great trust in God and born from a desire to enkindle the fire of Christ in the German pagans, Boniface grabbed an axe and chopped down the thunder oak of mighty Thor. So these Germans were, of course, astounded. The holy bishop preached the gospel to the people and used a little fir tree that was behind the now felled oak tree as a tool of evangelization. Pointing to it, he said, This little tree, a young child of the forest, shall be your holy tree tonight. It is the wood of peace, it is the sign of endless life, for its leaves are evergreen. See how it points upward to heaven. Let this be called the tree of the Christ child. Gather about it, not in the wild wood, but in your own homes. There it will shelter no deeds of blood, but loving gifts and rites of kindness. So 
So that's the story of Boniface and the first Christmas tree. Now, how accurate a lot of that is, is hard to tell, but that is, uh, that story itself comes from the Catholic Church's uh, official page. So, you know, take, take it with a grain of salt. Um, can't necessarily be confirmed, but it's widely accepted. Uh, back to the uh, Michigan State paper. Uh, people in Northern Europe also planted evergreens in boxes inside their houses in wintertime. Um, many early Christmas trees seem to have been hung upside down from the ceilings using chains that were hung from chandelier uh, lighting hooks. Um, this was after pagans. A lot of people consider this to be a pagan practice. This was actually used after pagans. Uh, other early Christmas trees in many parts of Northern Europe were cherry or hawthorn plants or a branch of the plant that were put into pots and brought inside so that they would flower at Christmas time, so they would have that decoration. Some people made pyramids of wood and decorated them to look like a tree with paper, apples, and candles. I got a buddy. Uh, as a matter of fact, Pastor Jeff's son-in-law makes those exact same types of things. People can decorate just like a normal tree. It's possible the wooden pyramid trees were meant to be like paradise trees. In early church calendars, December 24th was Adam and Eve's day, and the paradise tree represented the Garden of Eden. There's no doubt that fir trees have been used symbolically by many religions, but to claim that they were used as ceremonial trees before Christians used them is unfounded. Up next, we have mistletoe, and this information comes from Fort Worth Botanical Gardens. Just so you know, guys, whenever I look up information, I don't want you guys to think I'm talking out of my rear end. Uh, I do try to confirm my sources as much as possible, so this is going to be from Fort Worth Botanical Garden. This is the history of the plant. Many early cultures considered mistletoe a sacred plant, and numerous myths grew up around it. For example, ancient druids are believed to have used mistletoe in a ceremony that involved the sacrifice of two white bulls. In a Norse legend, the beloved god Baldr was killed by an arrow made of mistletoe in a sinister trick by the god Loki. In the Roman epic The Aeneid, the hero Aeneas uses a golden bough of mistletoe to enter the realm of the dead and speak to his father's ghost. The association of mistletoe with love and kisses dates back to Greek and Roman marriage ceremonies. The tradition of decorating with hanging clumps of mistletoe began during the Roman uh, winter holiday Saturnalia. It's not clear exactly when mistletoe became associated with Christmas, but by the 18th century it was well established as a part of winter holiday celebrations. So keep in mind, 18th century back all the way to Saturnalia, that's a huge gap. Um, so it's not quite clear how that came to be. So we're going to go ahead and say this is kind of a remnant from the pagan tradition. So this one, you can have pagans. You absolutely can have this. We totally appropriated this. <laughs> but, you know, it is what it is. I don't think there's any harm in it. Um, up next, we have a complex one, Santa Claus. So Santa's obvious real-life story was that of St. Nicholas of Mira. And the tradition of gifts on Christmas in regard to St. Nick goes as follows. There was a poor man who had three daughters. The man was so poor that he did not have enough money for a dowry. So his daughters couldn't get married. So those who don't know what a dowry is, a dowry is a sum of money paid to the bridegroom 
by the bride's parents on the wedding day. This still happens in some countries even today. Uh, this is also where the tradition of the bride's family paying for the wedding comes from. One night, Nicholas secretly dropped a bag of gold down the chimney and into the house. This meant that the oldest daughter was then able to be married. The bag fell into a stocking that had been hung by the fire to dry. This was repeated later with the second daughter, finally determined to discover the person who had given him the money. The father secretly hid by the fire every evening until he caught Nicholas dropping in a bag of gold. Nicholas begged the man not to tell anyone what he had done because he did not want to bring attention to himself. But soon the news got out, and when anyone received a gift, it was thought that maybe it was from Nicholas. So this is the official Santa Claus version of St. Nick, but there's way more to the guy. Because of his kindness, Nicholas was made a saint. So St. Nicholas is not only the saint of children, but also of sailors. Um, one story, and keep in mind, this is a total story. Uh, very hard to believe when you think about saints um, as anything more than just dudes. But uh, one story tells of him helping some sailors that were caught in a bad storm off the coast of Turkey. The storm was raging around them, and all the men were terrified that their ship would sink beneath the giant waves. They prayed to St. Nicholas to help them. Suddenly, he was standing on the deck before them. This is where it gets hard to believe. He ordered the sea to be calm, and the storm died away, and they were able to sail their ship safely to port. So that's why he is also the patron saint of sailors. St. Nicholas was exiled from Myra, later put in prison during the persecution of Christians by the Emperor Diocletian, but he was released in the time of the later Emperor Constantine, who was a Christian. St. Nicholas attended the Council of Nicaea in 325, where things about Christianity were discussed. No one is really aware of when St. Nicholas died. It was on 6th of December in either 343, which seems to be the most probable, 345 or 352. In 1087, his bones were stolen from Turkey by some Italian merchant sailors. Keep in mind, he was the patron saint of sailors, so that makes sense. The bones are now kept in the church named after him in the Italian port of Bari. On St. Nicholas feast day, 6th of December, day after my birthday, the sailors of Barry still carry his statue from the cathedral out to sea so that he can bless the waters and so give them safe voyages throughout the year. In 1066, before he set sail to England, William the Conqueror, who is actually a descendant of mine, prayed to St. Nicholas asking that his conquest would go well. So, Fun fact, anybody who is of British ancestry, about 25% of you guys are related to William the Conqueror. So... That's neither here nor there. So that's the official story of St. Nick. Now, how does the Santa Claus character get tied in with this guy? So let's figure that out. Okay, in the 16th century in Northern Europe, after the Reformation, the stories and traditions about St. Nicholas became unpopular. But someone had to deliver presents to children at Christmas. So in the UK, particularly in England, he became St. Christmas, Father Christmas, or Old Man Christmas an old character from story plays during the Middle Ages in the UK and parts of Northern Europe. So in France, he was then known as Père Noël. In other countries, including parts of Austria and Germany, the present giver became the Christkind or Christkindle, a golden-haired baby, or sometimes a young girl, 
with wings who symbolizes the newborn baby Jesus. German settlers to the USA also brought their stories of the Kris Kindle, who became known as Kris Kringle, as Santa Claus became known as Santa Claus. The name Kris Kringle was added as another name for Santa. In 1821, an anonymous poem called Old Santa Claus, which with much delight, was published in New York. It was the first time that Santa or St. Nicholas was described in a sleigh being pulled by a reindeer. The poem was published with eight illustrations in a book called The Children's Friend, a New Year's present to the little ones from 5 to 12. It's the earliest images of Santa Claus rather than St. Nicholas or Santa Claus. Now, in 1823, the famous poem A Visit from St. Nicholas, also known as Twas the Night Before Christmas, was published. In the poem, St. Nicholas is described. He was chubby and plump, a right jolly old elf and as coming with a miniature sleigh and eight tiny reindeer. This was also the first time that we found out the names of the reindeer. In January of 1863, the magazine Harper's Weekly published the first illustration of St. Nicholas, or St. Nick, by Thomas Nast. In this, he was wearing a Stars and Stripes outfit. Over the next 20 years, Thomas Nast continued to draw Santa every Christmas, and his works became very popular. On January 1st, 1881, Harper's Weekly published Nast's most famous image of Santa, complete with a big red belly and an armful of toys smoking a pipe. This image of Santa became very popular, with more artists drawing Santa in his red and white costume from 1900 to 1930. Santa was first used in Coke adverts in the 1930s, with classic Coke Santa being drawn by artist Haddon Sundblom. He took the idea of Nass Santa but made him even more larger than life and jolly, replaced the pipe with a glass of Coke, and created the famous Coke-holding Santa. So Coca-Cola also agree that the red suit was made popular by Thomas Nast and not them. So those of you guys who think that Coca-Cola invented Santa Claus, you're sadly mistaken. Okay, so now let's get into the reason for the season, the birth of Jesus Christ. So... A lot of people have debated on whether Jesus was actually born in December or if he was born in a warmer month. And honestly, I think this is the silliest debate that people have because in reality, it doesn't matter. The fact of the matter is that the Son of God was born and became man and eventually died for our sins. So who cares when he was born? But in an effort to persuade the folks who may have interest in this topic. We're going to go ahead and talk about it. So when was Jesus born? We're going to dissect this based on information that was given in the Bible and also knowledge of Jewish history. The Bible gives no specific date of Jesus' birth. However, the date can be estimated based on when Hebrew shepherds historically tended their flocks in open fields and according to the biblical account of Mary and Elizabeth's pregnancies. So the Bible says in Luke 2, 8 through 9, Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. So according to Bible commentator Adam Clark, it was traditional for the Jews to send their sheep to pasture from spring until early October, as the cold winter months began. 
the flocks would return from the fields for protection and warmth. So since the shepherds were still tending their flocks in the fields around Bethlehem, it can be deduced that the angel announced the news of Jesus' birth no later than October. So, didn't happen in December. To determine the approximate month of Jesus' birth, we can look at the birth of John the Baptist as described in Luke 1. Zacharias, who belonged to the priestly order of Abijah, and his wife Elizabeth, who was barren, became pregnant with John the Baptist after Zacharias' temple service. Gabriel visited Mary when Elizabeth was six months pregnant and announced that she would give birth to Jesus. By counting from the date of Zacharias' priestly service to the birth of Jesus, we can find additional clues to answer the question of when Jesus was really born. In those times, Jewish priests were divided into 24 courses that served in the temple throughout the year. The order of Abijah was the eighth priestly course. This is found in 1 Chronicles 24, 6 through 19. And this served in the temple during the 10th week of the priestly cycle. The 10th week started on the second Sabbath in the month of Sivan, which falls approximately from mid-May to mid-June. After Zechariah returned from his priestly duties, Elizabeth became pregnant with John the Baptist. Luke 1, 24-28 chronicles these events. Now, after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and she hid herself five months, saying, Thus the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Now, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary, and having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. Based on the Bible text and knowledge of the priestly courses, we can estimate that Jesus was born around the time of Tishri, which falls in mid to late September. This approximation is reached by starting at the conception of John the Baptist, which occurred in Sivan. Then we count forward six months to arrive at Gabriel's announcement of the conception of Jesus, which happened in Kislev, which is December. Finally, we count forward nine more months, which is the average time it takes for a human gestation to reach Tishri, September, when Jesus was born. Why do we celebrate... Theologians typically agree that December 25th is far from likely. In the late Roman Empire, there was a festival called Sol Invictus, also known as the Unconquered Sun, that celebrated the sun god on December 25th. Some have suggested that the choice of this date for Christmas was influenced by the desire to Christianize or replace this pagan holiday, conceived as an effort to establish a pagan substitute for a date that already held a degree of importance for Roman Christians. Another argument takes a different view. December 25th falls close to the winter solstice in the northern hemisphere, which is the shortest day and the longest night of the year. So in many pagan traditions, the winter solstice was a significant event associated with the rebirth of the sun and the return of longer days. Some festivals, like the Roman festival of Saturnalia, were celebrated around this time, often involving feasting and gift-giving. Saturnalia, in particular, is often cited as a possible influence on the dating of Christmas. Saturnalia was a Roman festival that celebrated the god Saturn and included various festivities, including gift exchanges and feasting. Some argue that the early Christians chose December 25th to celebrate Jesus' birth to co-opt or replace Saturnalia with a Christian holiday. 
When Roman Emperor Constantine converted to Christianity, it was easier for the newly formed church to repurpose the pagan observance of the winter, winter solstice between December 17th through 25th, since citizens were already prepared to celebrate the day. Thus, a celebration and festival filled with family and friends exchanging gifts meant these traditions would continue as Christmas. Now, it's very hard to prove, but I find it interesting that Constantine's first council of Nicaea had St. Nicholas in attendance. One can ponder whether the real Santa Claus had anything to do with the establishment of Christmas as a Christian holiday in December or not. But I like to think that Santa Claus probably had quite a bit to do with that. So the big question is, overall, why does it matter, right? Why does Christmas matter? What's the purpose of this Christian tradition, and why does it matter that it's so ingrained with pagan traditions? You know, should we still celebrate it, even though there are pagan traditions kind of interwoven in? Here are some perspectives that you guys should consider. One, it's an adaptation of cultural traditions, okay? Christmas as celebrated today incorporates various customs and symbols that have been adapted from pre-existing cultural traditions. For example, the timing of Christmas coincides with the winter solstice. You know, we have these celebrations already. We just readapted them for Christianity. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, it helps convey Christian messages within the context of the culture that they're already a part of. So that's one thing. The second thing is that we're focusing on Christ's birth. Right? Many Christians emphasize that the primary focus of Christmas is the celebration of the birth of Jesus. So regardless of the cultural elements associated with the holiday, the central message is that God became incarnate in human form. The birth of Jesus represents hope, salvation, and the fulfillment of prophecies, which are core tenets in the Christian faith. It's also a redemption of culture. All right. Some Christians believe in the idea of redeeming or sanctifying aspects of culture. By infusing Christian meaning into existing traditions, they aim to redirect the focus towards spiritual and religious significance. It's also an evangelical outreach opportunity, right? Christmas provides a unique opportunity for Christians to share their faith with others. The season often prompts discussions about the meaning of Christmas and the Christian narrative, providing a platform for evangelism, okay? It also provides unity and community, right? Christmas is a time when families and communities come together. Many Christians view the holiday as an occasion to foster unity, love, and goodwill among people. The idea is that by participating in cultural festivities, Christians can engage with others and share the Christian message in a positive and inviting manner. It's essential to note that views on this matter can vary among Christians, and not all Christians celebrate Christmas in the same way or for the same reasons. Some denominations or individual Christians may choose not to observe Christmas due to concerns about its historical origins or the commercialization of the holiday. Ultimately, the decision to celebrate Christmas is a personal and theological choice within the diverse spectrum of Christian beliefs and practices. I personally believe that it's way too much fun not to celebrate. And if Christ is at the center, who cares? 
think we'll leave it at that. Merry Christmas, folks. Much love to you, and God bless. <laughs>